You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. And Evergen, powering the transition to a resilient, renewable, decentralised energy system of the future. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy. Well, who would have thought that it would be the Australian mining industry that would show the way and lead the path towards 100% renewables, while the rest of the country has barely managed to get to 20% share of wind and solar in the main grid, we now find that many large and small mining operations, particularly in Western Australia, are aiming for 50% renewable shares and have actually achieved that and are now aiming for even higher shares, 100% daytime power from solar or even 100% total power from renewables at their big mining operations. And it's all happening in a very special state, Western Australia, which is isolated from the rest of the grid. But as we've discussed before with Energy Minister Bill Johnson, that's actually not necessarily a disadvantage, particularly when you can dodge all the political and regulatory restrictions that affect the Australia's main grid. Last year, Energy Insider's co-host David Leach and I went over to the Energy and Mines conference and it was a fascinating experience and we recorded a live podcast at the event. This year, we are doing the same. It is online, of course, and unfortunately, I wasn't able to make it because of various reasons. So David Leach hosted the panel, which includes Energy Minister Bill Johnson and some other special guests. Here's David now. Hi, it's uh, David Leach here, uh, and I would normally have my co-host uh, Giles Parkinson here for this special episode of Energy Insiders, which has uh, been brought to us from the Energy and Mines Australia Summit. And we are, uh, the um, uh, nominal topic is uh, why West Australia's leading uh, mining is leading leading the world. Um, I, I guess we've got an outstanding panel to talk to us today. Uh, Stuart Matthews is the Executive Vice President Australasia for Goldfields and sits on their um, uh, Executive Committee. Uh, Bill Johnson is the, has the big job, I guess, of uh, Minister for uh, Petroleum and Industrial Relations in West Australia and uh, has, I guess, prior to uh, uh, experience in gas prices and sat on an inquiry for a couple of years. And Gemma Green, uh, a West Australian native, uh, uh, raised $32 million, I think it was, for Power Ledger, uh, and has been Deputy Mayor of Perth and uh, also was at least briefly a director of my favourite super fund, Future Super. Um, before starting this podcast, I probably want to mention I heard uh, Minister Johnson, and I'm going to call him Bill, um, or refer to him as Bill, if, if I may, um, uh, speaking at a Smart Energy um, Council meeting of all the state energy ministers today, and he made an announcement, which we'll come back to, uh, that uh, for West Australia. But uh, I guess the point I wanted to make is that there was I was impressed with the high degree of uh, the spirits and willingness of all the state ministers that were present at the conference today, uh, looking at uh, decarbonisation and promoting renewable energy, certainly not limited to Labor governments. We have Tasmania going to legislate uh, for 200% renewable energy by the end of this year. 
uh, and South Australia. Daniel Volenholz Peckelman has has been at the forefront of efforts in South Australia, playing to the natural strengths of both those states. But of course, West Australia has plenty of strengths as well. One of the leaders in the West Australian industry has been Goldfields, and we've heard a fair bit uh, about them already. But I'd like to start off today by asking Stuart what his overall learnings are so far, uh, in particular from the Agnew project, and I guess the prospects of uh, extending renewable energy into the into the goldfields business. Uh, yes, uh, David, thank you for that. Uh, look, goldfields uh, some time ago embarked on a journey of uh, decarbonising our business, and. Um, Australia had a perfect opportunity um, as far as our mine sites go. You know, um, I think the the main uh, the main driver for us is the isolation of our mines in Western Australia. It's a big, big state. Um, usually, you're uh, most of our places are three or four hundred kilometres from the nearest um, little township, um, and we wanted to be standalone. Come up with standalone solutions for the long for the for the future where we could actually bolt on and add to the power generation as required as our mines got deeper um, etc um, so we didn't have we didn't want to have to be running um, you know um, a major transmission line for hundreds of kilometers at great expense and we felt that this was a there was a perfect opportunity to um, take a new approach and look at the renewable options and for our stand and help us with our standalone solution all underpowered under mine un, underpowered by gas as well which is like we're using that as a transition fuel to help us uh, on that renewable roadmap um, but it is clean uh, we've got good supplies of it in western australia and um, it helps us transition for the future I'd say the key learnings are that uh, you've got to have passion from the very top. Um, our CEO, who presented uh, vision for the company uh, yesterday at this uh, forum, he is very passionate, as is our board, with our full support of what we're doing in Western Australia and across the business globally on our approach to renewables and decarbonising our mines and having a positive impact for uh, climate as well. Uh, that is absolutely fundamental. We have those discussions every quarter at our board meetings, our subcommittee meetings. So it's a key focus for us as a company. I'd say key learnings um, with the Agnew project, get a lot of great base, baseline data early. Um, we sort of believe we could do it. We know it's windy out there sometimes. Uh, but you don't necessarily necessarily need a lot of wind. You just need to have some consistency in your wind, and um, get some really get a company that builds you good baseline data, and uh, also try and build uh, some good fundamental relationships like we did with EDL very early on. Um, but do some homework, and I think you really need to bring talent into your business that have the the knowledge and the mouse to take uh, take your vision forward. Stuart, I'm going to come back to you a bit later and ask you with the gold price at uh, uh, $2,000 and not $1,200 US and, uh, and the goldfield share price having gone up about, uh, I don't know how many hundred percent, but a lot. Uh, what does that mean for extending mine life and therefore how you think about uh, uh, extra reserves and how you think about the prospects for, for, for longer term deployment of renewables? So that, I'll come back to that uh, later. 
in the uh, Bill, I'd like to ask you. Uh, West Australia has a big mining industry. Uh, you, you, you've uh, initiated when you uh, came into office the um, um, uh, energy transformation strategy, and I think last time we we spoke, that was sort of you were getting to the point of thinking about uh, the outcomes from the transmission modelling. I guess it is. Could, could you just talk a little bit about where the resources industry uh, and, and the West Australian government come together in terms of renewable energy and, 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 and how you see that going forward? Well, of course, yeah, thanks, uh, David. Of course, um, most of our mining projects are not connected to the grid. Western Australia is very unusual for a Western uh, country in that over half of our electricity doesn't get transmitted through a grid. So like... Uh, the Goldfields Agnew project, uh, you know, several hundred kilometres from the nearest transmission line. Uh, so most of our large projects uh, self-generate, um, and that obviously leads to very high costs uh, for shipping diesel. Uh, you know, you think about it, it comes from Singapore to Fremantle, from Fremantle gets trucked uh, way into the desert. So it's probably the most expensive electricity in the world. So uh, renewables really have a cost competitive advantage here. And so that's why we're seeing companies like uh, Goldfields uh, and others um, moving towards renewables. And we know that uh, as, a, as we look towards a green steel future, that uh, renewable energies in the Pilbara give us an opportunity to underpin a lower cost energy source there uh, for uh, producing uh, uh, iron ore, world's largest Producer of iron ore, perhaps we'll be able to uh, uh, produce uh, that in a in a greener way by substituting uh, renewables for gas and diesel. Um, so the the uh, the concentration here is to work with industry to make sure that uh, there are no artificial roadblocks uh, to the deployment of renewables. Thanks, and I'm going to come back to ask you, I think, a little bit about uh, microgrids, which are almost the same uh, technical challenges, I guess, as the resources industry faces. And I know uh, you've been sponsoring a number of initiatives in that area and just ask a little bit about how they're going and how, how, in progress. But meanwhile, I'm going to ask uh, Gemma uh, about uh, PowerLedger and uh, what applications uh, she sees for that in, in the resources industry. Thanks. Uh, I think there's there's quite a few potential applications, uh, both for towns and communities and mine sites themselves. If we just look at the towns and communities to start off with, uh, uh, technology could be used to help local communities to uh, participate in decarbonisation efforts for mining companies. So um, I know of some mining companies in Western Australia that have been looking at uh, well, extractive industries which have been looking at biomass projects um, that were would, would be created by local communities that would uh, establish the existence of carbon credits that could be acquitted against the emissions for projects. Um, and our technology could automate that entire process for the measurement, reporting and verification for the establishment of credits, both um, biomass um, that, or also for electricity for that matter. Um, but in towns and communities, uh, uh, the market mechanisms could be put in place to facilitate and encourage people to install more rooftop solar and also batteries um, using our technology for virtual power plants. So that could make the system 
cheaper and cleaner and um, the towns could potentially take full control of townships and we did a model project for that in Wongan Hills um, with 10 sites, some with solar, some without, um, and demonstrated how um, the longer grid could be disconnected and the microgrid could be created within that town and that could be a model for mining towns as well. Thanks, thanks. And I should uh, point out that uh, we're going to be taking questions uh, at the end here for uh, uh, 10 or 15 minutes. So by all means, uh, uh, if you'd like to ask a question, go right ahead. Stuart, let's let's come back to gold fields, which uh, and uh, and and the gold price. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm a research analyst. I guess I haven't. Uh, last time I analysed a gold company, I think the gold price was thirty Aussie dollars. But so I think things have moved on a bit since then. But two thousand dollars. I mean, uh, there's going to be a lot more gold produced, isn't there? And mine lives are going to be extended, and uh, more opportunities within the whole industry. Um. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, and we're seeing a major escalation and exploration activity again. Um, and some of the old names are re-emerging. So old mines never die, actually. They do come to life again. Um, I think um, our longer-term view is that we are very comfortable, especially after our um, Agnew experience and also the um, experience we've had uh at Granny Smith Mine as well, we've also installed a um, eight megawatt solar facility as a bolt-on to the gas facility. There um, is that we. What we've done here is that uh, we have had some power supply agreements where they were coming to an end, and it was the perfect opportunity for us to take that leap of faith. Um, and it is working um, as. Um, Bill Johnson just mentioned that all most mines are heavily reliant on diesel um, across our business. Um, that is expensive, and the worst thing about it, it's one of the hardest things to budget for as a cost because uh, there's been no diesel costs and fuel costs. Um, they actually fluctuate wildly, even over the course of several months. And um, that's a risk to our business. Um, so what renewables give us an option to do is to make sure that we get much more security of supply and stability in the pricing. Um, and they also give you in time um, the opportunity for your pricing to really fall off a cliff. So that's um, in, a, in about 10 years, we'll own that facility at Agnew outright, and then our, our energy costs will be significantly reduced. Right now, it is even still compelling with the work that we've done so far. Uh, going forward to other parts of our business in uh, Western Australia, Goldfields is definitely in a study phase and looking to bolt on additional energy through renewables at our Gruyere operation. We were in 50% partnership with Gold Road. We're looking at that right now. And we're also doing the foundational work around maybe a wind resource for uh, Granny Smith in the future, and also uh, looking at long-term power solution for St Ives as well with renewables in the mix. Thanks, Stuart. Uh, Bill, I know I am going to ask about microgrids, but uh, first I, I realise I should ask about your about West Australian government's announcement that it's going to be putting, I think, $13.2 million into a 
I think I've written cathode, but it might be an anode manufacturing facility in order to perhaps give the um, battery manufacturing industry in West Australia uh, a bit of a kick along. Yeah, David, we're, we're very excited that the Premier announced today that uh, the Government of Western Australia is making an incentive package available for an uh, 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 investor to build either a precursor chemical, uh, a cathode active material plant or a cathode active material plant uh, here in Western Australia. And um, we've, we've already got uh, two... Uh, two uh, active investors in the uh, uh, lithium hydroxide space. We've got Abermar building a facility at Kemerton, south of Perth, and uh, uh, Tianchi uh, in the commissioning phase for a facility at Quinana in the outer suburban area of Perth. Uh, that adds to BHP Nickel West Nickel Sulfite plant at Quinana uh, and um, other uh, potential investors in uh, graphite and other materials and uh, so we now see the opportunity to bring together the materials uh, for a cathode active material plant uh, which is another step along the pathway to making the gels that go into batteries. Uh, so this is an important opportunity. Western Australia is highly experienced at handling chemical and other processing uh, operations. We have a very well-regarded regulatory framework uh, we have uh, uh, suitable land, we have high-skilled workforce, and we now uh, are putting on the table an incentive package to investment into a, a cathode active material uh, processing facility. It's only today I was looking at uh, SolarEdge, uh, which has become in 14 years the world's largest inverter company by volume. Uh, in, from, and they're an Israeli company with, uh, with a domestic market certainly a lot smaller than Australia. So it's great to see uh, governments, I think, uh, uh, just getting things going at the beginning uh, uh, to see, see whether it can work. I'd like to stay with you for a little while, if I could, on, um, and uh, just talk about um, microgrids. West Australia has been a leader in both uh, promoting community batteries and in promoting the idea that um, distributed microgrids that are not or very loosely connected to the to the main grid uh, can actually cut costs and increase reliability and it seems to me this is very similar to the problem that the resources issue resources industry faces I just wondered uh, how well that's proceeding and are you happy with the progress and do you see prospects for doing more in that area. I see that uh, not so long ago, $66 million went in to, the, um, to, to promoting um, these sorts of concepts in, in, out in the Goldfields area and also in more in Northern West Australia. Yes, so the state-owned enterprise that provides electricity for the remote parts of Western Australia is called Horizon Power. It effectively has one large grid and 39 microgrids. Um, it has uh, included in that is the um, Onslow microgrid trial, where they're um, providing effectively 100% renewable with uh, gas gas uh, backup. Um, but we continue to roll out increasing penetration of renewable energy across all of those uh, remote communities. In the southwest interconnected system, 
where we have uh, different government enterprises running those systems, uh, we have a massive dis differentiation in cost. So for the remote parts, so 51% of our, uh, our distribution overhead infrastructure serves only 3% of customers. And so we are moving to standalone power systems for those, effectively a, a you know, a, 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 a microgrid for an individual uh, farm business. And we'll, we ex we've, we're rolling those out right now. Uh, we would expect between six and 10,000 to be rolled out over the next decade. Uh, the good news is that's West Australian technology that's built here in Perth. Um, and of course is available globally. Uh, and all the companies involved in that work, of course, the, the great, what we're trying to do is standardize all the equipment so that uh, uh, it's, it's more easily deployed. So our deployment time has come down from three weeks to three days. And our hope is to get that deployment time down to just two days. So you can arrive at a site and have the entire installation operational within two days. So that uh, that's, you know, we could deploy that globally. Uh, and um, uh, it's, it's a genuine revolution for the way remote power can be provided. And as I say, when you, when you look at uh, uh, larger projects like uh, a mine, like uh, Agnew or, or a small uh, farm business, uh, you can find a West Australian business with a solution to solve your problem. That's, uh, that's fantastic. And uh, uh, you're probably not the right person to ask, but uh, I, I was interested in the previous speaker who you probably didn't see from SMA, who's talking about these grid controlled inverters. And in fact, I might come back and ask Stuart before I go back to Gemma. Uh, uh, you know, rotating, rotating mass uh, is kind of, um, and we've heard in the Agnew project that the kind of uh, costs costs the, the um, goldfields to to have to maintain spinning reserve. But it seems to me that grid forming inverters and, and batteries, um, uh, you know, there's good examples in Australia at Dalrymple Bay in South Australia that can offer very good prospects for for reducing those costs. Have you? Are you the right person to to ask about the, those kind of prospects, Stuart? Not on uh, too much on the technical side, but uh, what I can say is, look, the microgrid control systems are really revolutionising the uh, uh, the efficiency of that energy sources, those energy sources, because uh, they allow for that seamless um, control and turning off uh, your more expensive systems, you know, uh, reverting to the battery power. Um, it actually, they're becoming more and more sophisticated and um, they are definitely optimising the way you use your energy and it's also reducing your cost, that's for sure. Um, we, we do pretty well at what we've got, but you, uh, the previous uh, presenter was absolutely correct that uh, those things really assist us in um, reducing our spend as well. Yeah. Gemma, Gemma, I'm going to come back and not ask about uh, PowerLedger directly, but I'm going to ask from your experience in uh, investment banking and the international side of things, and I think also being on the Carbon Tracker Board, which is a global institute that tracks carbon efforts all around the world, just how you would see West Australia and the, and the resources industry and maybe... Uh, it, it, the progress that it's making and, 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 and the further opportunities. It's a very broad question, but uh, uh, over to you. The heightened awareness on, you know, climate and also just clean air is, you know, obviously driving 
this very significant energy transition. Uh, but the the model up until now has been, you know, subsidising renewables, and that has obviously driven large amounts of renewables into the system, but also caused significant challenges for grids. And um, you know, we're now, you know, the duck curve is something that you know that is common parlance in everyday households. They understand what that is. And it's not just a phenomenon here in Western Australia. You can see it in uh, like places like California. Um, and now we're looking at, oh, how do we deal with too much renewables at certain times of the day as well? And there's different approaches. Curtailment is obviously one not very popular. Um, looking at um, uh, uh, forcing people to shut, the, you know, shut down generation assets when they're, They've invested money in them is not not popular um, strategy. And then other things is to you know absorb it, store it in a battery, and that's another um, course of action. And another is additional subsidies to pay people to consume that power at the um, that time of the day. And also that's very expensive and costly for the taxpayer, um, and you know really suboptimal long long term. And so I think that. And we're moving into a different phase now where we need to look at how um, what what market mechanisms could be put in place to encourage um, grid stability uh, and drive reductions in carbon emissions at the same time. Um, so I think localised energy marketplaces are a way to do that and the feed-in tariffs are being, you know, retired around the world. It's already been retired in Japan and the UK and... Um, at these feeding tariffs are effectively the reason what's driven you know so much installation of renewables but it keeps the price of electricity very high um, at when there's you know more supply than that is needed and I think we're going to need to put market mechanisms in place driven by things like virtual power plants to encourage that, that energy to be stored and um, and deployed either in frequency control and ancillary service markets or in um, you know just consumed as their source of energy later in the day, and if we don't do that, I think that the drive to reduce uh, carbon in our electricity grids is going to be um, stymied, and we'll be needing to look to alternative sources of um, you know re reduction in carbon emissions, which could otherwise be derived from electricity grids. So I think that there's a big push, and you can see with you know lots of uh, mainstream funds now looking at decarbonising their portfolios as well as niche, you know, superannuation funds and investment funds doing that. There's a lot of capital that is able, available to be deployed for large-scale solutions, but um, a lot of these solutions are predicated on augmenting transmission grids, which are very expensive. And it could be that localised generation and storage could um, deliver the same outcomes both for the supply of electricity but also provision of grid services without needing to augment the grid further and um, add additional network costs to users. So I think that, sorry, it's a bit of a long way of explaining this, but the, the carbon story is very much linked to the market mechanism story around how electricity markets are going to hang together. Sure, and I, I don't know, no doubt that if we had a national carbon price, um, uh, uh, you know, people would look at a lot of different businesses uh, differently. Which brings me back to one of the all made, and I, I, every now and then I 
It's great to hear the small stories, the micro stories, reducing the installation times from three days. As a stockbroking analyst, that's the sort of stuff we'd love to hear. That's efficiency. That's how people increase their return on capital. You come down the learning rate. That's, that's where you make your money every day. But if we just uh, turn to the uh, uh, drone view or the helicopter view or whatever, the satellite view, uh, it's these big projects like uh, putting hydrogen into an iron ore works. Or, I mean, if you're producing the electricity and you've got the iron ore, why don't you even have a steel works in uh, northwestern Australia? Um, and it's a hydrogen strategy. Uh, I wonder, Bill, if you just wanted to talk about, you know, when, when, when you guys in the West, and I'll never understand West Australia, when you guys talk about... Uh, uh, you know the, the the big visions. What 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 uh, what what can you see? Well, look, uh, there's lots of visions, but I just want to congratulate Gemma on summarising the challenge for the grid very well. And I just do a bit of advert that uh, that's why we've got our distributed energy resources roadmap, and why we're looking at some of the perverse incentives around rooftop solar. It's not that we're against rooftop solar. It, we're, we're in favour of it. We want to make sure it works, not just for the person who installs it, but for the system as well. So we'll, we'll be talking about that even more very soon. Look, in terms of the big picture, uh, one of the things is that we'd like to see, you know, if we're going to transition, if our customers are going to transition from using LNG to using hydrogen, we, we're an ideal partner. So, you know, the, the uh, uh, Pilbara... Asian uh, Energy Hub is a potential 30 gigawatt hydrogen play. And, um, you know, we, we want to be part of that. We have been a long-term reliable uh, a client, a, a supplier for energy to our Asian partners. And we believe we can take a, a, a carbon-constrained uh, opportunity to continue to do that. In respect of uh, processing of materials in Western Australia, our natural resources, I mean, we do, as I say, we already, uh, the world's largest nickel sulphate plant is here in Western Australia, providing the sulphate into the battery industry. We're close to having those uh, high, um, lithium hydroxide plants operating. Uh, we, we provide uh, processed um, a re, um, uh, uh, mineral sands where Looking forward to being uh, processing of uh, rare earths here in Western Australia very soon with the Linus project in, uh, in Kalgoorlie, $500 million investment in Kalgoorlie. Um, in you've got to have a customer. I don't know that uh, building a steelworks in the Pilbara would be sensible because there's 300 million tonnes <laughs> of global supply of steel and all we'd be doing is increasing that. But on the other hand, you might be able to partner with people in Asia who already have steelworks to provide green steel inputs like uh, further processing of our magnetite. So, you know, the, the, the Ironbridge project, the Citic Pacific uh, Sino Iron project, they are very exciting for us here. And we think that we can go even further down that uh, uh, mineral processing space in the iron ore area to provide, uh, you know, harnessing renewable energy like uh, FMG's plan with Ironbridge uh, to, to do even more work in that space. Thanks. And, and I might come back a little later to you about hydrogen again, notwithstanding its cost today. But Stuart, uh, can I just ask, I mean, you look at Goldfield's global business. I mean, how important to you is 
I guess, I mean, you've done more in renewable energy in Australia than as far as I can tell you've done at your offshore operations, and you can correct me on that. Uh, why is it that you can do it in Australia and, and, and you can't do it overseas or haven't done it so far so much overseas, if, if that's the right question to ask? And, uh, yeah. Well, I think um, you have to look at uh, Western Australia as a, um, you know, it's a tier one mining jurisdiction. Um, it's, um, it's technologically advanced. We're uh, a modern uh, country. And um, I think uh, our ability to deliver these projects um, is probably a bit enhanced because of the jurisdiction. I think it's uh, that definitely helps. Um, but I can say that goldfields haven't been sitting on their hands in other regions. In South Africa, um, we have been uh, installing a lot of solar solutions and uh, the same is happening in Ghana and West Africa and, uh, and also there are plants afoot in um, one of our new mines in South America as well. So, you know, we have been doing a bit, but uh, you're right. Western Australia, I think, is um, it's a it's a really good jurisdiction to be able to do business. I think um, we've got the support of all these sort of things from uh, the government, state government. I think that's uh, absolutely clear what we've heard, and. Um, it's just the way that uh, the state of Western Australia is so big and there's a lot of not much out there. And where we operate is very isolated. And we're not the only ones, of course. <laughs> Another one. <laughs> but step away from Kalgoorlie, everything else is a long way away. So it makes <laughs> sense to actually have a solution which is not, um, you know, have energy solutions that um, are sustainable for the long term and don't rely on a lot of expensive transport solutions, um, you know, volatility in the pricing, like I mentioned before. Um, and also our investors and our stakeholders also are asking us and they want us to be on a roadmap to being sustainable and being in renewable energy space and clean energy space and having some positive impact for any, any climate change that's coming our way. Our employees absolutely want it as well. So if we're not doing these sort of things as a company and modernizing our business, we don't attract people to our business as well. The young people that are coming through want to be involved with, a comp with companies that are doing this sort of thing. And that's very important that we acknowledge that because it's important to them. So that's, that's another part of the, the story for us. Uh, that's uh, all of all the things that I, I certainly believe in myself. Uh, it's, uh, if you can um, get your employees all uh, uh, pushing and pulling towards a common goal uh, and they want to do it, uh, that's, that's what, uh, that, what that always leads to better outcomes, uh, I, I believe myself. And I think myself, the mining industry is, is falling into step with the finance industry, as, as uh, we've heard from Gemma and seen from, uh, is, is pushing, pushing um, its uh, uh, companies in this direction generally. Uh, it's, it's 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 popular with people. Surveys consistently show. So I, I expect that broadly it's going to be politically popular because if you do something that sixty or seventy percent of the people want, then you know you're more likely to be talking to someone that supports you than otherwise. Bill, if I could well, just come back and ask. Uh, sorry, go on. Oh, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I was just going to endorse no. what uh, Emma sort of touched on as well. We've 
you know, there is a real appetite in the capital markets, you know, for uh, and uh, banking sectors now. You know, even their even their shareholders are asking the question: Well, what are you doing to help on clean investment, clean energy investments? What 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 are you offering your customers? And um, so those sort of demanding that of uh, the banking sector and uh, and the financial markets out there as well. And um, so if you've got major sustainable gold, a major sustainable gold business which is renewable and clean, and uh, you really do attract the the investment market to you to your business, um, that's that's really important. Um, and also, I just want to give an example at Agnew that uh, some people, some some of our employees, who um, they see that investment out there as not something to be really proud of, and um, they, they. And one person said to me as he's driving out sunset and he saw the uh, turbine slowly turning, he said, "Almost had a tear in my eye as I drove out the gate to the camp." <laughs> Because you just felt like it was modernised and it was a major investment into the future of that that asset. Sure, you sure you didn't have a hangover, but anyway, um, uh, <laughs> uh, Bill, I might ask about what, how how is how are you thinking about, or how is your government thinking about hydrogen, and uh, is there a plan there already, and uh, and and, or, and a roadmap? Um, it, I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I'm careful about hydrogen because the cost is very high, and uh, it's not clear to me it's going to be a winner just yet, despite all the all the hope around it. But anyhow, well, clearly, I mean, hydrogen uh, is the holy grail, isn't it? If we can get it to be cost competitive, then uh, you solve the problem of firming for renewables, because at the moment uh, you can't. There's, there's no effective, secure firming for renewables. Uh, you know, renewable firming. Okay, so the government has a strategy. It's run by the my good friend, the Minister Alana McTiernan, um, and uh, we are deeply engaged with uh, industry participants. There's a, a funding round open at the moment, oh, sorry, uh, that's being rolled out at the moment to support innovative projects. Uh, are two that I'd just highlight. Uh, the first one is the uh, Horizon Power, the state-owned enterprise that provides electricity to remote parts of the state, is uh, currently uh, looking at a project in Denham, a, a fishing and tourist village uh, in, the, in the north of the state uh, that would uh, be um, uh, would, would test the hydrogen uh, uh, equation of a, um, a closed-loop renewable project. Uh, and another one that is being supported is uh, ATCO, the Canadian uh, energy investors who have a hydrogen hub here in metropolitan Perth where they have the capacity to test uh, scenarios in a, um, in a simulated uh, 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 facility uh, so that they can uh, uh, test all the options for the use of hydrogen in a, in a house. Uh, or in a in a in a uh, other uh, sample environments. Um, uh, so they're both very exciting. Just examples of the projects in the the grander scale. There you do have projects in the Midwest and the Northwest aiming to produce green hydrogen for export. Uh, one of the challenges is 
the the uh, the difficulties of transporting hydrogen over long distances. But uh, you know, there's a whole range of uh, uh, people around the world having a look at that, uh, and uh, we're confident that um, you know there'll be a solution in that space. The good news is that um, uh, there's so many large corporations around the world having a look at the hydrogen uh, area, and uh, you'd expect the cost curve to come down rapidly, uh, in the same way as we've seen with solar and wind, as the these products become more um, commodities and uh, the, the, uh, uh, they get more modulized, more standardized, and the price would expect to fall over time. Yes, I think for me, uh, what uh, my comment would be that uh, I, the storage cost of hydrogen is so low. That's the one thing uh, that is, uh, I think, where its advantage is extremely high. It's You can just store a lot of it very, very cheaply. And so for those occasions when uh, you need... Uh, uh, when you run out of your other forms of uh, energy shifting, then then hydrogen could well be an answer. Um, Gemma, I'm going to ask you a question. What's next? Uh, that's really not directly related again to uh, to the Energy and Mind Summit. It's a bit naughty of me, but I, I like to do these things. What's next for Power Ledger? It's kind of hasn't done much, I don't reckon, myself uh, uh, in the past six months. What, 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 what's what's next for you and Power Ledger? Uh, well, uh, we've got quite a few things happening right now. I think we've got 20 projects in about 10 countries. Uh, in Europe, we're seeing quite a lot of interest in the tracking of energy and uh, households being able to uh, choose their own energy mix, not just say I want renewable energy but I'd like solar from this farm, wind from that farm and get like quite specific. In the US, we're partnering with a NASDAQ-listed company for the trading of renewable energy certificates, we're, we're launching a marketplace to um, facilitate um, energy companies and multinationals that want to buy RECs to be able to do that on, uh, in a marketplace rather than via brokers. There's about $3 billion worth of RECs issued in the US market each year. And then in Australia, uh, we've, we've launched a virtual power plant uh, 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 platform feature which is, we're putting into the South Australian market. Um, but I think that that's very exciting um, a platform feature coupled with peer-to-peer -peer, uh, trading of electricity. So if, if, if solar electricity is priced correctly, it should um, be sitting you know, around the kind of average wholesale price. And peer-to-peer uh, -peer trading of electricity um, could uh, offer a lower price point for rooftop solar and, in, and deal with the duck curve without the need for any subsidies at all. And also a market mechanism around batteries could facilitate households or encourage them to, to buy batteries and trade that energy in the market and get a fast payback and also provide services to the grid. So it's really, you know, renewables are the problem, but they can also be the solution. And um, we're seeing a lot of interest around automating the procurement uh, processes for power purchase agreements and also the procurement of network services from grids. It's very, it's not, it's not very easy for batteries to see where all their income streams are. And our platform is really about making it really seamless for the batteries to um, optimize their income earning potential. So we're really excited to see what's happening with the DER um, roadmap and the task force work in, um, you know, in doing different trials and experiments and also reforming the rules and regulations to 
to make that um, not just something that we talk about, but a reality. Thanks. And I'm going to come back to Bill again, because we have got the energy transformation strategy. And I've talked about, we have talked about a little bit about the district, the microgrids and uh, the big picture. But I guess the uh, issue with that uh, in Eastern Australia is with the integrated system plan is all around about uh, what transmission's needed and uh, where it's needed and all the difficulties of actually getting it done. In some ways, with everything being owned by the government in West Australia, or a lot more of it, it's kind of, it's more of a just making the decisions appropriately and then getting on with it. Uh, and then I think, as I said at the outset, the last time we, we, we were chatting about this, um, um, we, it was a question of whether it was better to use the existing transmission in the south uh, and a slightly perhaps lower quality resource or more expensive versus building new transmission to the north. And listening to you on the forum, the Smart Energy Forum this morning, uh, I get the impression uh, the decisions come down of making the most of what you got. But perhaps you could talk a little bit more about that and the rules and regulations. Sure. Look, so the energy transformation strategy is obviously focused on the grid in the south of the south uh, southwest of the state uh, rather than the remote parts where most of the mining uh, takes place um, whilst we do there are a number of grid connected mines both in Kalgoorlie uh, and elsewhere uh, most of the mining does take place further away so the transformation strategy um, is about getting the grid ready for those this high renewable content future uh, which quite frankly is here already um, and yes, the whole system plan uh, is not yet finalised, but uh, it's not far away and it does indicate that we will be able to avoid these high cost transmission lines, uh, which would push up prices and make renewables less uh, cost effective. And so uh, if we can, um, in fact, uh, ensure that uh, renewables can get into the grid without having to uh, pay for these high cost uh, high voltage transmission lines, that's obviously uh, good for everybody. Uh, it's good for investors because they'll be able to make a cost effective investment. It's good for energy users because the advantages of, uh, uh, you know, uh, fixed cost renewables, because they can be more, for, uh, the price path of a renewable is more related to capital than fuel. And therefore, as Stuart talked about with the challenge of diesel costs, uh, can you can eliminate those uh, price risks for the future, and it's good for the consumer, uh, you know, uh, the taxpayer and 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 uh, wider community because we can avoid having to push up our network costs to, uh, which is such a you know forty percent of the cost of electricity is the is the network cost. So for other consumers, they can benefit from that as well. The other thing that the transformation strategy does is to harness DER. You know if. Gemma used a great word, which is the real cost, the real price of uh, energy. And, you know, if in the middle of the day, if you've got a real price of minus $100 uh, a, a megawatt hour, but where the government of Western Australia is paying $70 a megawatt hour for rooftop solar, you can see the perverse incentive. So if we can resolve those perverse incentives, not to stop, not to, to provide an incentive to do what we need you to do, that is, we want you to put the solar in, but we need you to do other things as well. Then we can harness the full value of the of the solar energy, which is being installed effectively for free. You know, 200 megawatt power station installed every year by mums and dads across Perth, uh, which the government and industry are not paying for. 
So if we can get the best value out of that massive investment, then that's good for those, commun those community members who are installing the um, solar panels. And it's good for the system because we can make the most out of that massive investment uh, and harness it for the benefit of the community and the system. And importantly, through virtual power plants and other options, uh, provide those grid stability opportunities uh, to the network and therefore uh, reward people for participating in that at a lower cost than it would have otherwise be for purchasing those services from other investors. So it's, it's you know, the transformation strategy is about everybody winning out of renewable energy rather than concentrating on the costs of dealing with renewable energy. And if I just yeah, ask about one of the costs, go, go ahead, John, Gemma. Oh, yeah, I did think they're really great comments, Bill, and the 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 idea that you know that renewables are the problem, full stop. Um, you know, I think that you, you know the it's looking at how do we actually utilize all of that investment in in such a way that actually delivers the outcomes that that we need, and you know that requires you know innovation and um, out of out of the box thinking. It sounds really cliched, but there isn't anywhere else in the world that's actually, you know, dealt with this or contended with this and figured out what the energy system of the future looks like. So in many cases, we're ground zero in figuring out, you know, um, you know places like yeah. South Australia and Western Australia and California uh, and Japan and Germany are really, um, they're going to be the places that everyone is looking to. So um, if we come up with a solution that, you know, is super high cost. It's not going to be the model that everyone else follows. We'll just be the case study of how it didn't go, you know, how, how not to do it. But if we can create the win-win outcome that, that Bill is referring to by putting the right market mechanisms in place, people won't be upset that they're not getting a feed-in tariff anymore because they'll be better off overall. Um, and they'll, they'll maybe make more money from their battery than they would from a feed-in tariff. So I think that the the um, you know, politically removing feeding tariffs is very sensitive. But if you look at the whole piece, the whole story, and how you can engage the consumers to invest more capital in batteries to drive the system outcomes that are needed, it'll be acceptable to um, say goodbye to things like subsidised feeding tariffs. Yeah, I'd also add, I think there's still a lot of opportunity for uh, big business. And I'd, I'd specifically mention uh, aluminium that I look at a lot, but you don't have so much uh, aluminium uh, uh, smelting in, um, um, in, in in West Australia, but uh, to to yeah. to adapt its power use and to become more variable, because that's the other side yeah. of things we haven't uh, mentioned is how demand can change in response to changes in prices. But I want to come back to Stuart and just ask, um, as you look at your budgets, and I, I guess it doesn't matter, you know, when the, when the gold price is so high, I, I think it's inevitable you're going to look at uh, projects more kindly while, while the cash is there. That's just my uh, off-the-cuff comment, which I'm sure you disagree with. Uh, but are you seeing the costs of renewable projects uh, or renewable options coming still coming down as far as you're concerned? Or, you know, well, I think they are, but there's all sorts of funding solutions to get, uh, they are coming down, but I think there's funding solutions to actually get your power um, project over the line with the right business partners. Um, and uh, we've done it by um, locking in some power supply agreements where we repay the capital essentially over the term of a power 
supply agreement over a number of years. Uh, that's equivalent to pretty much what we were doing anyway. So it's it's, it's worth doing. Um, we would have done. We would have committed to renewables and new ways of securing our energy and um, for the long-term solutions anyway, regardless of the gold price, we're on this journey for, uh, anyway um, because it protects us from the downside on gold price. And there will be another downside. Uh, we'll, uh, oh, yeah. it, won't, it won't be at $2,000 for, forever. We know that'll come. We plan at a lot lower price than this. Our planning. Uh, so, you know, uh, as that old, old stock yeah. stockbroking adage is that the um, the answer, the cure for high prices is high prices, and vice versa. And I, I think any of us that have operated in markets for a long while will will, will have seen the same things. Uh, Bill, I want to ask you. Uh, we're, we're, we're coming up towards. It just gives you the opportunity to optimise extraction of your resource. That's for sure. But uh, as far as energy solutions, we would still be doing this anyway because it is the right thing to do as a corporate citizen, and um, we get share price value and valuation of our company because of what we're doing in the space. And that was Stuart Matthews from Goldfields wrapping up that conversation with David Leach. And apologies for the abrupt ending, but the uh, the session had a defined time limit and, uh, and didn't quite get the ending exactly right. But look, it was a fascinating discussion, as you heard, um, also including State Energy Minister Bill Johnson and Gemma Green from Power Ledger. Um, thank you very much for Energy and Minds for inviting us once again to have the webinar, the uh, Energy Insiders po podcast as part of their conference. We hope to do it again next year. Thanks also to our regular sponsors, Evergen and Pylon. Thanks to you for listening and goodbye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises the performance of residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy of the future.